The subject for this evening's talk is awareness and time. Some time ago last year, in fact, I was giving some teachings in Rome, Italy, just in fact a few minutes walk away from uh, the Pope's bedroom, which was rather a delight. And one evening I was watching the television there at the friend's home that I was staying in. And this was perhaps in the early hours of the morning, one or two o'clock in the morning. And the reason I was watching it was because a friend suggested that it would be, uh, might be useful for me to see a particular advertisement which came on night after night on this program. And the advertisement was selling watches. And what was interesting about the advertisement was that these watches were extraordinarily expensive in the 2,000-plus category, 2,000 pounds, 4,000 dollars these days. And the adver advertising went out night after night in the effort to persuade people of the merits of buying this particular watch with all of its fancy appearance. And what kept striking me and what seemed rather funny and also to my friend Maro, whose home I was staying at, was that what can watches do but tell the time? Whether we buy a, a $10 watch or a $4,000 watch, basically there's not much it can do but link up two numbers. And sometimes people, as this program seems to show, are willing to pay the earth and work possibly hard for such a small everyday piece of information. And in a way, it's a little bit of a, I think, of a, a comment on our society on the exaggerated values that we have gathered and also the way that we use time, the way that we use time. And I think that sometimes in our day-to-day -day life, we look at our timetable and we have certain meetings, appointments that we are obliged and have agreed to keep and it runs through the day one day to the next and we see that whatever uh, field that we are engaged in the possibilities are that in the course of time we will get to know more and more people therefore we'll have more and more meetings which are always a great form of self-denial going to meetings and we'll have more and more appointments 
there'll be more and more people who have access to our telephone number, to our address, and gradually our life seems to be consumed in time. Live in time, impressed with time, preoccupied with time, obsessed with time, and we think, we live, we breathe, we act, and we use our watches, and I can't help noticing, I've got, there are four of them in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, you never know, one might break down, so the others... <laughs> I'm going to start up a second-hand shop. <laughs> so we get consumed in the things, the things of time. And it seems that our life then becomes an extraordinary effort to fit everything in to the time that we have. And we are consistently saying to ourselves and to each other, I haven't enough time. And perhaps we don't really stop and ask ourselves, what on earth am I talking about? I haven't enough time. And so we make a kind of commodity out of it, and then we are endeavouring to fit everything in to this idea of making and having enough time. It generates, of course, it's not just a conceptual activity, things are never just conceptual, but also there is an emotional factor with it, and we notice that one of the strongest emotions which often comes out in relationship of pressure to time is anxiety. We speak about time, we speak about fitting things in, about getting things done, we're speaking about our feeling and emotional life, we're talking about our anxieties. And then it comes to be like a kind of common conspiracy between human beings about the issue of time, and that reinforces it more and more. Everybody thinks time matters. Time is of the essence. Time is significant. This is also bombarding us from the messages around us of efficiency. And we've become increasingly obsessed in work, in study, in research, in the technological field, with being more and more efficient. Which then becomes another way of saying to us, I can get more done in a shorter span of time. there's a kind of, I would say, unquestioning obedience to this ideology, destructive, harmful, and often, as has been pointed out frequently enough, scratch the surface a little bit of things, and we see and experience quite a different relationship to things, to time. So our world becomes very, very fragmented and it becomes a world on the one hand of work and study and pressure 
and all of the time involvement, and then what we have to do to try to recover from all of that, for millions of people of course, is to go on a holiday, and essentially a holiday is life without an alarm clock. That it provides for a short period of time a little relief from all of that, only to have to go back the following uh, week or fortnight back into that world waiting as some people do on a Monday morning for and praying even meditating for the next holiday or the next retreat or at least for Friday evening and five o'clock to come because it's a signal that it's a little bit the end of time the obsession with it and our life can proceed like this through year after year to the day we drop. <laughs> I've said it often enough, hu human species is incomparable. This is an example of it. So then we come into a situation like this. There is, of course, time factors, time on the notice board, time of sitting, time of walking, and perhaps an even more structured day than one what, is, what one is used to. And it would appear easily and understandably for us that in a relationship like that, that throughout the whole sequence of the day, from 5.45 to 9.30, there always seems to be something to do. I've got to go and do the sitting now. <laughs> I've got to go and do the walking. I've got to do the work period. I've got to go and ring the bell. I've got to get my eight hours sleep in or else I'll be a basket case in the morning, <laughs> etc. And so the relationship is looking at the times of the day and thinking and feeling, God, the day is so full and, how, and I've got to do this and then I've got to do that. And the thinking, the imagination, the interpretation is precisely like daily life. We bring, as it were, our package into this situation. And then we find ourselves engaged in the sitting posture and we arrive and the relationship to the sitting time may vary quite considerably as people were pointing out in the small group today from one person to another. One person may say, well, I sat down and after short period of time it seemed to be going okay I could tolerate my mind wandering and the knee pains weren't too bad I got halfway through the sitting it got a little bit worse and for the last third of the sitting I was just waiting for it to be over with just waiting come on ring that damn bell <laughs> and let's get the hell out of here Rather similar to working life, really, isn't it? 
or another person comes into a situation, sits, sits down, and it seems to be, right from the very first moment, a kind of deliberate masochistic act of self-abuse, <laughs> which has the spiritual name meditation. And within a minute or two, if one can't wait that long from the very first breath, one feels tension and agitation, doubt, reactivity, and an incredible sense of pressure occurring and wondering how long can I stand this for? <laughs> this was the first sitting of the week. <laughs> one has counted up, it's nine days, Seven sittings a day, that's 63. <laughs> Only 56 to go. <laughs> and this whole relationship, the whole awareness of time, pressure, anxiety, future projections, and once again we have repeated history, we have brought the whole story of our day-to-day -day life and we have successfully transplanted it into this setting. Hardly noticed, hardly been aware of the fuss that we make of time. So we look at this, and we think, well, but that's the way life is. That's the way the, we've organized our life. We've organized our society. We, we've become increasingly more demanding, not only on ourselves, of course, but also demanding on the kind of services, public services or whatever, which, which go on around us. And some, some people here, including Henrietta and Jose, have uh, been to India and have traveled elsewhere and have had the, the privilege of knowing what complete unreliability is all about. <laughs> <laughs> and have, have had the ex experience of um, being amazed if anything does run on time and arrive on time and leave on time and it becomes a chai shop talking point for a week. <laughs> in this culture that we live in, in our Western culture, we make more and more demands and we expect the world and various services and situations in our life to fit in with our will. And this generates incredible aggression, reactivity, hostility, demands, and countless other expressions of basic egotism that the world ought to be working on time in the way that I dictate, whoever this I is, dictate it should. And so thus time and suffering, time and conflict, time and pressure, time and anxiety become enmeshed together, I, again I say with unquestioning obedience, and sometimes it has reached a point with us that those people on this earth 
who perhaps show a little bit more intelligence and a little bit more wisdom and are a little bit more laid back and a little bit more relaxed about time that we then find ourselves becoming increasingly intolerant of such people because they are not so obsessive as we are. Not so caught up in time. And I think we have a lot of exploration to do. A lot of real care and interest to see about what we are thinking in time. Because spiritual life is a radically transforming perception of life and it is concerned essentially with one thing and one thing alone, though it may be put in different words, and that is called timeless. Thus the sitting periods and the walking times and the various uh, formations, shall we say, of the day can really provide us with a remarkable and perhaps precious and rare opportunity to see, well, what is my relationship to time in sitting, as an example? When I've been walking in here during the course of the day and have sat down on the chair, on, on the floor, what actually has been going on for me? How much have I been dwelling on? How much longer is there to go? How often, how frequently have I felt the need to look at my watch? How much dependency on there is there? Is there feelings of elation? God, there's only 10 minutes left. Or feeling of despair? God, we're only halfway through. It's been the longest half hour of my life. Just in the relationship to what happens, is there the possibility for us to, to look in a practical and direct way and see how am I considering from one moment to the next? Can I give myself some opportunity for a more relaxed view on things? One of the things which we notice, speaking of, of time, is that our relationship to life and our experience of life seems to be one in which it appears like more and more, for many people report this, more and more things, more and more events, more and more responsibilities and duties are entering into our life. And thus there is a feeling that life is becoming more and more crammed. This cramming of things into our life has all of its various extensions and which take place upon us. And in the situation here, there is a certain, hopefully, uncramming going on. That the very activity of putting things aside allows for each one of us a little bit more space. That space may initially be the digging a little bit below the surface. Sometimes that space is such that our experience 
which flows out of us is due fairly exclusively to what we have carried to the situation. The tendency is with sitting, with walking, with the kind of day that we have here, is to say this posture, this meditation, this moment is causing me the pain, is, is the cause of the difficulty, is the cause of the conflict. And we tend all too easily to say, or rather to forget or neglect, perhaps it's not so much what's happening in this moment that is the problem. Perhaps it's what is being brought to it which is the issue. Not the posture itself, not the awarenesses themselves, not the meditations, the mindfulnesses of themselves, but what's being brought to it. What are we bringing into today? And sometimes, during the course of the sitting and the course of the walking, one begins to recognize, which is some signal of some in insight that the way that you or I are relating to a sitting period or relating to a walking period is actually a statement about our whole existence. It's not just a comment on sitting meditation. It's not just a comment on walking meditation. It's a comment, it's a communication to us about how we relate to life in general. Sometimes it stands out in one sitting, one sees one's whole existence is revealed through a 45-minute period, if not less. From beginning of it, the middle of it, and the end of it is a comment on how we relate to numerous beginnings, middles, and ends. Therefore I say our life is in the moment, our being is being revealed, like it or not, here and now. Well, sometimes we get a feeling of, and a sensitivity, shall we say, to the microcosm of moments of meditation as the, like in comparison to the macrocosm of our existence. If we say let me put aside some of the preoccupations, let me put aside some of my identities and some of my roles, let me generate a little bit more space. If we say that to ourselves and hopefully we are and, what, and it is one of our purposes and reasons for being here, then that gives us, hopefully, s enough space for some reappraisal of where we are with time. Sometimes, as one person said, today one can engage and find oneself in a rhythm in this kind of situation where 
doing from sitting to walking, as an example, going from one time to another, actually doesn't make a great deal of difference. When we are preoccupied with time, one thing which we are doing and another thing which we are doing really seems to make a very big difference. I must be here, I must be there, I must get this achieved. And the differences are accelerated and magnified to the degree we are obsessing with time. And sometimes we can be a wearful human being, a heartful human being, in which the apparent differences of sitting and walking, the apparent differences of one time and another, are not so great. What would that mean for our heart? What would it mean to be? In which differences are not as great as we give to them owing to the infatuation with things of time. So, let me just take that in a small way because it's a kind of scratching of the surface situation. Just recently, to take a slight diversion here, just recently in uh, uh, Britain there has been a book which has been published by a, one, of, one of these people who is called a kind of royal reporter, a man named Andrew Morton, and has written a book about Princess Diane, the uh, member of the royal family, engaged or married rather to Prince Charles and two children, one of whom is in, of course, the eldest son, in direct line of succession to the throne. And there has been, in recent months, and uh, sometimes such things get uh, reported uh, else, elsewhere, a tremendous hoo-ha in Britain, or hubbub, or whatever one wants to call it, because the outer appearance of things and the inner story have such a blatant contradiction to them that it's been very difficult for royal lovers, I'm certainly not in that uh, category, uh, of bridging the outer and the inner, going a little bit deeper into things. The outer story was of this fairy tale romance of a prince who was supposed to be uh, bright and intellectual and uh, thoughtful and uh, some measure of that, and another story that the princess was fun-loving and loved dressing up, was very beautiful, dressing up in ex very expensive clothes and doing all the right social whirl. And a perpetuation of the, a storyline. This goes on in our own life, incidentally. <laughs> and it, got, it gets played out as a kind of large social drama uh, in England. Then it would uh, appear, if, if the story has any uh, truth to it, and judging by the research and having just been uh, reading this uh, uh, book, that in probing a little bit deeper, there's a terribly sad, sad story at work. The outer appearance of success 
the outer appearance of popularity, the outer appearance of show, all taking place, and with a little probing, a very tragic situation of a, of a young woman's life and the internal consequences of a gap between the outer appearance and the inner truth of things. This sort of storyline played out on a larger scale is often and very frequently, of, of course, being played out in people's lives at all sorts of ways and at all sorts of levels. And so sometimes when we put aside, as I mentioned before, the outer things of things, sometimes it is not an easy experience to face one's existence. But not to face it, not to experience, not to be touched, is to put off the inevitable. And the inevitable is uh, either explosions of suffering and pain in our life, or a constant feeling of anxiety and depression underlying whatever social face we express. And I say, therefore, the function of retreats, the function of meditation, life serious meditation and contemplative practices is such that we put things of time aside, it may mean we have to deal and work with the effects of that which we've just scratched. Difficult as it might be, unpleasant, unwanted, unwelcome and unsatisfactory as it might be, but nevertheless, it's our existence. And therefore, a lot of courage is expressed in rooms like this, and a lot of spirit and a lot of capacity is being expressed. And that spirit and that capacity and that awareness which is being expressed includes in it let me see what this issue of time is and what my relationship to it is. Would we dare be so bold? Would we, would we be so spirited and so brave to say that the things of time I am obsessing about and I am preoccupied with actually don't matter a damn? that all the fuss we keep making about time and efficiency and appointments and this and rigidity and control and all of, all of this is actually irrelevant. It's a social conspiracy. And the irrelevance of it can be re realized through discovering something else which is timeless. Find that first, and all of these social entertainments and, and conspiracies will look after itself. We've seen through the mythology of it all. So the awareness of time is not in fact to support and substantiate it. The awareness of time is for the revelation of something which all mystical traditions have spoken about with a tireless enthusiasm.
far greater than anything of time. And one sees that in the long lineages and traditions. And the loveliness of that, the, the, the fragrance and the, the beauty of all of that, that it can come clear, not through years and years of hard, diligent meditation, not through years and years of concentrating the mind and, and making uh, a lot of effort and trying to reach our spiritual goals. Actually, it can just come clear quite spontaneously. Just in the moments of sitting, in the moments of walking, the moments of being in our indoors or out, out, outdoors, something just flowers for us. And that flowering puts all these things into a perspective. And perhaps that's the greatest service that any of us can provide. Provide for ourselves and provide for others is the potential for that realization. So please take a, an interest in the totality of a sitting period. Is it, a, is it the story of your life? Please take a, an interest in the totality of a walking period. Is this the story of your life? May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings discover a timeless way of being. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we, please?